Father, we thank You as we pray so often of all of the different ways that You have given us to worship You. We thank You for this time of being able to worship You in spirit and in truth, in song. And now as we turn to Your Word, we want to worship You in the study of it. We're so grateful that You have provided truth to us that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth that will never ever disappoint and how grateful we are for that provision. We pray that You would freshly fill us with Your Holy Spirit and give us a supernatural capacity to hear Your voice through Your Word tonight. We pray that You would speak to us as a congregation. We also pray that You would speak to us individually as we have need here tonight. Lord, we pray for those that are studying John chapter 7 for the first time in their life, that You would give them the capacity to appreciate the beauty of the Savior that You have sent. And for those of us for whom this is a familiar passage, You would uh, work in our lives to give us a fresh understanding and a fresh worship of You for what You have done for us in Him and for just Him, for simply who He is, Lord. Thank You for providing us with this Savior. Thank You for being our Lord and thank You for the relationship that we have with You and with Your Son. Now deepen and enlarge our relationship, we pray tonight, the study of Your Word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening. John's Gospel, chapter 7 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we come to this place this evening. Remember, as we were together last time in chapter 6, there was this great crowd following Jesus related to uh, the feeding of the 5,000, and He tested their commitment to Him by virtue of, of doctrine, and a great uh, many uh, uh, melted away, and uh, He was left there with the disciples. And so uh, there's a lapse of at least several months that occurs between uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7 in uh, the public ministry of Jesus. John, John's Gospel is unique, as we've mentioned already, in a lot of different ways. But going forward now from John chapter 7 to the end uh, of the Gospel, he concentrates entirely on the final six months of Jesus' ministry prior to His death on the cross, His burial, His resurrection, and ultimately uh, His ascension. And so this becomes, this Gospel uh, focuses very, very uh, strongly uh, on that. We're told in chapter 7, verse 1, after these things that Jesus walked in Galilee, Galilee being the northern part of Israel where Jesus uh, was raised. For He did not want to walk in Judea, which was, uh, Jerusalem was the capital of the southern uh, section of of Israel known as Judea. It was the religious center of, uh, of Israel. And so the Jewish religious leaders were concentrated very much in Jerusalem and they constituted uh, the, the greatest uh, pool of resistance towards Jesus and His, his ministry. And so He's staying up in the north at this particular point in time doesn't want to go down into Judea because the Jews, and here the Jews so often in this Gospel, doesn't refer to all of the Jews or the common people, but it refers to the Jewish religious leaders 
For the Jews or the Jewish religious leaders uh, sought to kill him. And the timing of these events was the uh, Jews' Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, this was at hand. So you have the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three great uh, uh, annual feasts of uh, the Jewish religious calendar. And it always occurred within the fall. And what it celebrated was God's provision for the children of Israel under the Old Covenant when they were led by Moses out of Egypt and how God provided for them for the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. How God took care of their needs and their unbelief. They didn't go directly into Canaan, but God in His grace uh, took care of them. And so for those 40 years, they moved about uh, the wilderness. And uh, so their tent structures and this kind of thing that they slept under were pretty simple. And so as a part of the, the uh, celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles and this time in Jewish history, if you lived in Jerusalem, you wouldn't stay inside of your home. Uh, you would take the kids and the whole family out into the backyard or side yard and you would build up this kind of a tent structure out of pieces of wood and, and uh, different fronds and stuff from uh, palm trees and all. And uh, so that you could lie under it at night, look up and see the moon and see the stars. And then the kids would ask you and say, Mommy or Daddy, why in the world are we doing this? And then the parents would be able to recount this 40-year period of God's faithfulness to them in the past and then remember it and pass it on generation to generation. Because it was one of the three major feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, Every Jew that lived in Israel, was, uh, male, uh, male, was required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And so it was expected, and this is helpful to understand, it was expected, Jesus being in the land, that He would ultimately make His way uh, down into Jerusalem to partake in this Jewish feast. And so, uh, this is the timing. And his brothers, when they're up in the north, up in the Galilee, his brothers, therefore, uh, said to him, depart from here and go into Judea. Leave the northern section. Go down uh, toward Jerusalem uh, that your disciples, your followers, may uh, also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seek, seeks to be uh, known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so, Jesus has been concentrating most of His miracles in the north, in the area of Capernaum, uh, and Bethsaida, and, and all of this happening in the north. He did do miracles in the south, but it was mostly concentrated in the north. And His brothers, as we're told again significantly in verse 5, for at this point in time, even His brothers did not believe in Him as the Messiah. And, and so they were basically mocking him and saying, here you are, you're doing all of these miracles. You notice they believed in his miracles. They just didn't believe he was the Messiah. And so you, you're doing all of these miracles up in the north. Anybody that wants to claim they're the, the Messiah in Israel, you can't avoid Jerusalem forever. Uh, go down there and do some of these miracles and make a splash and and see what comes of it. And, uh, and so they encourage him 
uh, to do that. It is interesting to realize that Jesus there uh, in uh, verse 3 and in verse 5, that he did have brothers, they were half-brothers, and uh, Joseph being their father, Mary being their mother, uh, Jesus had no physical connection to Joseph. Uh, his, uh, his conception was uh, a miracle of the Holy Spirit in, in Mary. And so it shows us here, though, that Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin, as the Roman Catholic uh, Church teaches. The existence of brothers here uh, does away with all of that. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 1, almost anticipating that this would become uh, a false teaching in our, our, our later in history, uh, we're told in verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and uh, he took uh, Mary to be his wife, and he did not know her, that is, have sexual relationships with her, until she had brought forth her firstborn uh, son, and he called his name uh, Jesus. And so all of that is, is clear in the passage and can help us depending on what kind of background we come from uh, to Jesus to understand this mention of his uh, brothers. Now, the, uh, the reason for the mocking here and, and the scorning, so to speak, and uh, uh, the way that brothers can do with one another is they didn't believe in Jesus at this point as the Messiah, certainly not as the Son of God. They will. Following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and following His ascension, we're told in Acts chapter 1 that all of His brothers would be a part of that group of 120 that were in the upper room, that were then filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem. So ultimately, they all do become followers, disciples of their brother, uh, of Jesus, understanding him fully for who he, he was and who he is, but probably after uh, his resurrection. It's interesting that, that this, uh, their unbelief was prophesied of in the Old Testament Scriptures. You might jot it down and look at it later. In Psalm 69, verses 7 and 8, very much a messianic psalm, uh, written by David, it declares, um, and here you have David speaking, but on behalf of the Messiah, in terms of a far, a near and a far fulfillment of it, he, he declares, for your sake, that is God's sake, a Messiah saying, I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face, and I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. And so here's the reproach that he is uh, experiencing there. You notice that he talks about his brothers, but he talks about them as uh, being alien to my mother's children because Jesus was not uh, Joseph's uh, natural son. He couldn't refer to them as uh, my father's uh, children. He shared them with uh, the same mother with them, but not the same uh, father. Jesus disregards their counsel, which is, uh, we would anticipate that he, uh, that he would. Uh, very, very little good instruction comes out of scorn and mocking. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time uh, is always ready. Jesus spoke continually through his ministry, my time has not come yet come, my time has not yet come, my time is not yet come. And the time that he was speaking about is the time that he would unveil himself as Messiah and as the Son of God formally to the nation of Israel 
at his triumphal entry a week before his crucifixion. And here are the brothers, they're wanting him to go down and raise people from the dead and cleanse lepers and do all of those things. Certainly nothing wrong with any of that. But Jesus is waiting in, in order to produce, they wanted to produce a, a wow moment, and Jesus is waiting to produce the greatest wow moment that you can uh, ever produce, and that is for him to reveal himself as Messiah to the Jewish people in fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And so here is the great miracle, uh, and the greatest miracle you can ever have for building people's faith upon a miracle is the fulfillment of prophetic scriptures as opposed to uh, raising someone from the dead or healing them, as wonderful as those things are in their own right. And so he doesn't take their counsel. Uh, he has another day that he's going to reveal himself and in, in another way, a superior way. Jesus then uh, told them that their time is always ready. And, uh, and that's the truth of anyone that doesn't believe in Christ yet. I mean, when you, before you and I were Christians, our time was always ready. All we had to do is think, I want to do that, and then we're going to go do that. Uh, I don't know how many of you before you came, became a Christian thought, you know, I ought to take God into consideration here. No, our time was always ready. And uh, there was no consultation with God, no concern about His will for our lives, and these things that marked Jesus' life. And, uh, and so they could do whatever they wanted. Your time is already come. He said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. So this is the hidden side uh, of, of Jesus. His life, uh, the, the life that he lived, his teaching, uh, what it did is it condemned hypocrisy, it condemned wickedness, and it condemned evil. So often there's this one-sided picture of Jesus that the world loves, uh, that he spent, uh, the idea is that he spent three and a half years uh, walking through Jerusalem uh, with various sheep over his shoulders and uh, carrying them from one city to the other as this kind, gentle uh, shepherd. And yet he speaks of himself, I am hated, but he reveals the reason that he's hated, and that is for speaking the truth to man. Uh, in, in, a, in a way that um, nobody else speaks to man, and especially the religious leaders, and that's why they hated him. Uh, he testified that their, its works are uh, evil. You can have a wonderful, as a, a, as a Christian, we can have just about as wonderful a relationship with uh, every unsaved person in the world, no matter how evil, uh, they might be if we uh, don't live a life that, um, that brings conviction concerning the evil or speak up and say something about this is what God says about that issue. You can get along with anyone if you hide this side of Jesus. But this is the, the side of Jesus that, uh, that is, is going to end up having him on the cross. Uh, the threat that he was to the power structures of uh, the wicked hearts of the religious leaders and, uh, and their uh, hypocrisy. And so uh, Jesus said, we'll be hated just like he was hated. We should never expect the world to treat uh, Jesus inside of us any differently than it treated him 2,000 
years ago, but that only assumes that the full Jesus, full of grace and truth, is coming out of our lives. He said, you go up to the feast, and I'm not yet going up to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. And when he had said uh, these things to them, he remained uh, in uh, uh, Jerusalem, or in, in Galilee, uh, presently at that time. But when his brothers had gone up, then after some time after, he went up uh, to the feast, not openly, but as it were, uh, in secret. So he goes to Jerusalem, makes his way there, and, uh, and, but he uh, conducts himself and brings himself into the city, and he's really very much low-key undercover. So he doesn't come in with a big public splash or uh, anything like that. People didn't know that he was even there uh, until a particular event that we're going to talk about here in a moment occurs. So he went up there, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And there were all kinds of discussions going on about him. Remember, all of these Jews, they estimate that at these three Jewish feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, that uh, more than a million people would be in Jerusalem at that time. So you have people from all over, Jews from all over the world, it's just jammed with people. And the subject of discussion now, at this particular point in time, is Jesus. And the Jews, they sought Him at the feast, and everyone was asking, uh, where is He? They knew He had to come uh, in fulfillment of the Scriptures, but they hadn't seen Him yet, and, their, and all eyes were uh, on the lookout uh, for Him. And, uh, and for the Jewish religious leaders, it wasn't for his good but to find him and to kill him at this point. And there was much complaining among, uh, pe- the, uh, among the people concerning him. Some saying, he is good, and then others saying, no, on the contrary, he's just a deceiver. He deceives uh, the people. They didn't believe in what it was that he was saying. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So, if we think that cancel culture is a new phenomenon in our modern age, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Now, the only form of cancel culture that is worse than what we're experiencing today in in the censorship and the intimidation to hold uh, views without being uh, persecuted Uh, for those views and not allowing for an exchange of views, who would want to live in a world where everyone held the same views? I love every conversation I have with every every single person I talk with because that conversation's educational. And, And most often that conversation challenges my views in some way. And I'm not afraid of having my views challenged, certainly not spiritually, but otherwise as well. How would we grow into any kind of maturity at all if, we, if I still held the, the views of everything that I held 40 years ago uh, or a year ago? No, there's always to be growth in these kind of, uh, of areas. But the worst cancel culture is religious cancel culture, and you see the intimidation that is going on here. We think that the social media guys are new related to all of this. They had nothing on the Pharisees, nothing on the Jewish religious um, system. Everybody's walking around whispering about their ideas about the Messiah, 
because they're afraid if they made their view known, they'd be in hot water with the religious authorities uh, of, of the day. And so it's a very, very uh, ugly kind of, uh, of scene that is going on here uh, in, in that kind of intimidation that had been uh, produced by uh, the Jewish religious establishment. Now, at the middle of the feast, uh, Jesus went up into the temple uh, and he uh, taught. So the, the Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day feast. So here's somewhere in the middle of this. He goes up now and he reveals himself and, and he goes up to the temple and he taught. This was common for all rabbis or teachers. If they would teach, they'd go up to the temple area, go into one of the courtyards, they would begin to speak. They would have disciples that would be looking for them that morning or they begin to speak and a crowd would join around them out of curiosity in terms of what they were, uh, what they were speaking. And so Jesus got up and, and, and he taught. And the Jews, including the religious leaders there, as they listened to him, they marveled saying, how does this man know letters having uh, never studied. And so that word marvel, it carries the idea of, of wondering uh, with admiration toward, uh, toward him. They were wowed by his handling of the Scriptures, what he had to say about God, uh, the, and how to apply the Scriptures, and, and so forth, and certainly as his revelation of him as uh, as the Messiah. And so uh, they hate him. They're looking to kill him. And, and all of this is going on. And yet when he opens his mouth and he begins to teach, they cannot help but admire him and admire what it is that he's saying. And what they couldn't understand is how he could know the Scriptures this well without ever having gone to their schools. And, uh, and, and that mystified them, that somebody uh, could, could know the Scriptures the way that they did, and obviously better, that's what produces marvel in you, is when someone knows stuff way beyond what you've ever seen before, uh, and, and how that could happen without them, him having been a disciple of him. Well, it helps that he was the author of the book, part of the Godhead that brought the Bible into existence. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, that has to put you, give you a tremendous advantage in, in knowing the Word and in, in ministering uh, uh, the, the truth uh, of, of the Word. And so uh, here is this, this awe that is going on. And Jesus answered them. They posed the question and, and saying it publicly, evidently. And Jesus answered and said, My doctrine, my teaching is not mine but He his who sent me. And now He's speaking of the Father. Uh, what I'm teaching you has come from God the Father. And if anyone wills to do His will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak uh, in, on my own authority. Verse 17 is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Jesus Himself, I mean, there it is, red, red letters right in front of you. He said, if anyone wills to do his will, uh, uh, God's will, obey him, he shall know, and the, uh, the word know there is gnosko, have a knowledge that comes by experience, not just head knowledge. Uh, this, this knowledge will prove itself in the nitty-gritty of a daily life. 
If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I'm just speaking in, uh, in my own uh, authority. So you have this scene in Jerusalem where there's this so many views related to him. Uh, he is the Messiah. He is a teacher. No, he's not. He's a deceiver. And then the religious leaders with all of their opinions and all. And so it's much like the world that we live in right now. There's so many opinions about Christ. I mean, everybody stands up and claims to be an authority on Christ. And so a person can legitimately get confused and wonder how in the world in all of these varied opinions can I know that He is the Messiah and that what He is teaching has actually come from God. And, and uh, Jesus uh, declares to them, declares to us, all that they needed to do to clear up any doubt was to begin to obey His teaching and they would soon discover it to be absolutely uh, true. And how so? By the supernatural quality of life that it would produce. The supernatural quality of life that simple obedience to the Word of God uh, will uh, produce. And so nobody in the whole world has to take the word of any mere human teacher uh, or the opinions of anyone and everyone else in the world. We, can ha we have our own means by which we can have our own personal, experiential, living proof of the truthfulness of His teaching. And as we obey His Word, the life that then unfolds will become an evidence that this truth is from God. Because only God could know us this well. And only God could know what we're in the middle of every day and, 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 and give us what's necessary in terms of commandments to, uh, obey, uh, to navigate the nitty-gritty of the, of the darkness of the world that, that we live in. So they, they jokingly uh, call philosophy, uh, encapsulate philosophy as a blind man in a dark room searching for a cat that is not there. And uh, so philosophy is, the, is a love of wisdom. It's a search for wisdom. But in, in, uh, in, it's a while back, and I still will dabble in it. I'll read stuff on it. But I thought I ought to know a little bit about philosophy uh, as, a, as a pastor. And so I read uh, uh, several books related to it. Could not wait to get out of them. You, you, this, this search for the truth but not believing in any truth. This search for the way to live, but not believing in any, any absolutes. Uh, and it just ties your head up in knots, gives you a headache, and you just got to go uh, run wind sprints somewhere to, to get the adrenaline out of, uh, of, of your body. And so the beautiful thing here about, uh, about what Jesus brings uh, here related to this is He's talking not about philosophy. He is talking about truth. He's talking about truth. Not a search for truth. And the interesting thing about philosophy, 
especially if you've walked with the Lord for a while and you know the Bible fairly well, you listen to philosophy and you see the glaring holes in it. And it's very frustrating because you just say, you can run a white freight liner through that hole. This is never going to help people in any meaningful way, not even in their heads, let alone how to navigate this life on a physical level, how to deal with the temptations, desires of our own heart, how to be in proper relationship with other people, much less in relationship uh, with God. And so Jesus comes along and he deals in truth. And, and, uh, and he says, you do my word. You obey these words I'm teaching that I'm declaring from the Father. And you will have your own personal internal proof of the supernatural origin of this truth. Again, because only God could know us this well. The interesting thing about the Bible, and it's a beautiful thing as we've walked with the Lord for a while, is the truth of the Bible is self-authenticating. You obey it in any area of life, and it ends up showing itself to be the truth of the way to handle this situation or this relationship. And and this is very handy as we uh, share with our our friends, as we share with our loved ones and with our neighbors. There's nothing wrong with uh, saying to somebody and showing them here this verse that that, uh, Jesus spoke and said, listen, you're all confused. You've studied this. You've studied that. You've gone into all of the Eastern religions and now you're an atheist and all of this this kind of of thing. But Jesus just says, if if you want to know whether this truth is is from, uh, that He teaches is from heaven, from God the Father, uh, just begin to do it and it will prove its supernatural origin to you. And then you leave them there uh, with that. And they, they have everything that's necessary to authenticate it uh, for themselves in the hardest place to authenticate something and the place where it needs to be authenticated most, and that is in the daily of our lives. Of course, the, <clears throat> the very first place to begin in terms of, of obeying what it is that the Father has spoken to us through the Son is to be born again, have the Holy Spirit come into our life, and then, then we're off and running. But this is His guarantee, and you notice there, if anyone, if anyone, this works with anyone that is interested in a world that is filled with voices claiming uh, authority on everything, and including God, this works for everyone, and no one will be um, disappointed for having taken Jesus up on this promise and, uh, uh, and, and to find that it's true. And so, uh, don't take my word for it. We can say to our friends and loved ones uh, that it's the truth. Uh, as the old saying goes, the uh, proof of uh, the pudding is in the eating. Uh, eat it yourself and you'll find out. Uh, taste and see, as we sang tonight. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You taste and see and and this will prove itself uh, to you. And then he, uh, he declared in verse 18, he, he who speaks from himself, 
uh, seeks his own glory. They were accusing him of speaking of, of himself, trying to glorify himself. Jesus says, I'm not doing anything of the sort. But he who speaks, uh, he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, that is the Father, is true. No unrighteousness is in him. They were discounting him, his claims to be the Messiah, because they thought that they were rejecting it, uh, uh, saying, uh, well, isn't it convenient for you to show up on the scene and declare yourself to be uh, the Messiah? So it was a self-promotion kind of thing. And uh, Jesus says, you're not seeing any self-promotion in me. I'm just declaring what the Father has told me to say and uh, concerning uh, myself. And uh, you know full well that there are no un unworthy motives behind my teaching. And then in verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to uh, kill me? And, and so he uh, confronted the Jewish religious leaders with their hypocrisy of being so concerned before the multitudes, a concern for keeping the law of Moses, and uh, while at the same time uh, plotting Jesus' death. And so uh, they hear this. Now, this is a very, very public setting. And, uh, and so Jesus speaks of the fact that they are uh, Jewish religi religious leaders seeking to kill him. He says it publicly here now. And so uh, the Jewish religious leaders, uh, they don't like this, this information being out in the open, even though it, it was quite well known. And the people answered and said, you have a demon who is, who is seeking to kill you. So it's kind of like um, if you ever uh, stole cookies from the cookie jar as a kid or pudding or whatever, and you get confronted by your mom and the evidence is all over your face. I mean, the evidence they know, they're completely busted. But um, <clears throat> when you find yourself in that place as a kid and just the immaturity of it, I mean, you will deny it in the face. Uh, sometimes, I hope you were a better child than I was, I would deny it in the face of all evidence until... Uh, the belt came out, and then uh, th that took care of, of all of that. But uh, here is this bluster. What are you talking about? You have a demon. They know full well uh, that uh, Jesus was, was revealing their hearts. And then Jesus said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Talking about when he raised that man by the pool of Bethesda who had been uh, there uh, it, it, beside the pool with his mat for 38 years uh, and, uh, and crippled. And he said, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave, uh, gave you circumcision, uh, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. Circumcision predated uh, Moses. It was given at the time of Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath day. And if a man, uh, uh, according to the law of Moses, a male child was to be circumcised on the eighth, eighth day, whether even when that day fell on the Sabbath. So if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, uh, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, you, ha you, have to, you have to do this or violate the law of Moses. Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? He said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous 
uh, judgment. And so uh, here they are, they're still seething over Jesus' healing uh, of that man on the Sabbath day. And not only that he healed on the Sabbath, but then he called the man to pick up his mat and carry it out of this place. You're done uh, with this scene. And Jesus pointed out to them that even the law of Moses was not without some work on the Sabbath day, including uh, circumcision. And he raised that subject then of, of uh, male children being circumcised even on the eighth day. In other words, if God had commanded circumcisions to take place on the eighth day, even when they landed on the Sabbath, then how could it be considered uh, inconsistent in your interpretation of Sabbath law that he would uh, uh, heal on the Sabbath day? Now remember, Jesus never violated the Sabbath. Never violated the law of Moses uh, related to the Sabbath. Never violated the law of Moses in any degree. Never violated uh, 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 any of that kind of stuff. But what he did violate was their wrong-headed interpretations of the law of Moses. And they added so many things to the law of Moses with their interpretations that were way beyond whatever God ever intended certain commandments to be, and they certainly did it um, in spades related to, uh, to the Sabbath. And so uh, they had developed a, a, a version, uh, an interpretation of uh, what Sabbath law uh, meant that even God couldn't keep. They even put God under the Sabbath, uh, uh, their interpretation of the Sabbath law. And then de declare them to be in violation of that law. Uh, anytime I've interpreted any, any of us, if we interpret any command in the Scriptures, and, and we interpret it in such a way uh, that God can't be God without violating that interpretation, we can just know our interpretation is wrong. And so he's just pointing this out uh, to them, the folly of your interpretations of this. You guys ought to be mad at yourselves for what you've done, the way you've twisted yourself up into knots and not mad at me for simply pointing it out to you. Now you have to remember that when Jesus comes on the scene in His public ministry, teaching, doing miracles, raising people from the dead, cleansing the lepers, none of this thing had gone on speaking for God. It had gone on for 400 years between Malachi to then the opening of the first gospel and speaking of Jesus' introduction into the world uh, in His incarnation. It wasn't like they have this long history and here comes another miracle worker raising people from the dead and cleansing lepers. They're a dime a dozen. They haven't seen this in 400 years in their history. And in fact, they've never seen it with this kind of concentration in their entire uh, history. And, and, and yet, uh, here they are. They're going to, uh, rather, than, rather than looking and saying, you know, this, uh, this makes me doubt my interpretation of Sabbath law. Maybe this guy knows more about Sabbath law than we know about Sabbath law. 
But their pride is so great, they can't even entertain the thought. Their power was so great, they wouldn't, just would not allow any threat to it in, in any way. And so they, they, they will not, uh, they're unwilling to accept that as a possibility. But Jesus confronts them with it. And that's why he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Look at it in the light of what the Word of God has really said rather than your interpretations and your man-made ideas. You are not judging me. You are not judging my teaching. And you are not judging my works based upon the Scriptures. And for that reason, you are not judging uh, with righteous judgment uh, here. And he confronts them uh, uh, with this, uh, this uh, very thing. And so, uh, what does the Bible say about this? And the question is not, what does a religious leader say about this? Uh, what does the Bible say about this? One of the reasons that I love um, going through the Scriptures the way that we do at Calvary Chapel, and, and one of the reasons I love the Bible in whatever form it, it sits on your lap, is that I read and then I teach from it, and your eyes go down and you look at the passage, and then you look back up at me. And always this kind of thing. You've seen those little birds that go down into the, the water? But it's, it's saying that what you have here is a congregation that is not willing to accept just my word or my teaching about anything. They look back down into the Bible to see if it's there. And no one should ever have a position in our lives that is as, as authoritative as the Scriptures themselves. It'll never be a threat to um, anyone that is, is concerned uh, about uh, truth. It's a wonderful thing. And it's another reason, never go to church without a Bible. Don't you ever trust uh, uh, without a discernment whoever it is that's ministering uh, the Word. You need to have your thinking cap on more than ever when somebody claims to be speaking for God and His Word. Now, some of them from Jerusalem, uh, they said, uh, is this not He whom they seek to kill? And so here are the people again from Jerusalem, and they hear Jesus speaking, they hear this exchange going on, and they said, is this the guy we've heard about that the re Jewish religious leaders want to kill? So it was an open, uh, an open secret. And they said, but look, he teaches boldly. And they say, uh, nothing to him. Uh, do the rulers know indeed that this is truly uh, the Christ? And so they're very, very um, impressed by Jesus' boldness here and, 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 and the fact that uh, these religious leaders not, did not run roughshod over him. He stood his own and more. He's winning these, uh, these discussions. He speaks boldly, and then when he speaks boldly, they don't have, seem to have anything to say against what it is that he's saying. Do the rulers know indeed that he is truly the Christ? And so this doubt is entering into their minds about what they've been taught by the Jewish religious leaders concerning Jesus not being the Christ. And however, they said, however, we know where this man comes from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows uh, where he comes from. And so there was a prevailing opinion concerning uh, the Messiah at that time. 
And that when he would come into human history, nobody would know where he came from. And, and he just would come out out of nowhere. And it, it appears to be kind of a, a misguided interpretation of Isaiah's prophecy concerning, uh, concerning the Messiah, where in Isaiah 53, verse 8, uh, and, uh, and who will declare his generation? And, and so they, they took this, and they took this to mean, even though Micah said he will be born into the world in the city of Bethlehem. But, but this, this view prevailed uh, as well. And so here's you've got a group of people, they're rejecting Jesus as Messiah, not based upon the Scripture, but based upon their own man-made ideas uh, concerning uh, the Messiah. And it's uh, tragically uh, true uh, even, uh, even yet, uh, yet today and uh, uh, no one will ever reject him when he's put to the test of, of the scriptures they should have known from the Old Testament scriptures that he would come out of Bethlehem and it seemed they were very very ignorant under the teaching of the Jewish religious leaders uh, of uh, the details concerning the coming of, of Messiah it's terrible to be a part of a religious system uh, that had been hijacked by the scribes and the Pharisees at that time, and um, claiming to represent God and claiming to be about all about the Messiah, and all you're getting is misinformation about uh, the Messiah. That can't be a, a good church to attend. And, and so then in verse 28, Jesus cried out as He taught in the temple, You both know Me and you know where I am from. I have not come of Myself, but He who sent Me is true whom you do not know but I know him for I am from him and he has sent me and so Jesus uh, he, he addresses their ignorance and this was a rebuke they would have recognized it as being an, a, a rebuke and he stated the truth about himself he repeats the same truths that had bugged their Jewish religious leaders all along, that he came from God, he'd been sent from God, he spoke for God, and he knew God uh, personally and was the Son uh, of God. And so, far from backing down, he's using this opportunity uh, to the fullest. I mean, people's eternities are hanging in the balance. And therefore, they, the Jewish religious leaders, they sought to take him. I mean, they just so wanted to arrest him. And, uh, but no one laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. All of this was in, in the, the Father's timing. And many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than uh, these which this man has done? And again, that, that period of 400 years of just no activity on the part of God in this, in this regard. And, uh, and they're just saying, I mean, I don't know how high the bar is around here for recognizing someone to be from God and to be the Messiah. But if we're waiting for something better than this, I don't know who we're waiting for. I don't know who's raising the dead and who's teaching like this and, and is, is ministering to people, feeding 5,000 with loaves and fish and cleansing the lepers. And it was a, a great observation that they made uh, concerning him. What are we waiting for? And the Pharisees realized that they're losing control of, of their kind of lock on the on the crowd, they heard the crowd murmuring these things these, uh, that were indicating faith concerning Jesus. And the Pharisees and the chief priests 
sent officers to take him in an attempt to uh, arrest him. And then Jesus uh, said to them, uh, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. Don't you just love him? I mean, he's just not going to get off this dime. It's talking about his father again and the fact that he's been sent by his father and he speaks for his father. I'm going to be with you a little while longer. Uh, and, and talking about his incarnation, his public ministry, he will ultimately ascend uh, in, into heaven. And uh, so I'm only going to be with you a little bit longer. Then I'm going to go back to him who sent me, speaking of the Father in heaven. And their, their blood just must be boiling. They've never run into anyone uh, like this. And all Jesus is doing is just truth, 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 truth. And uh, when you don't like truth, that's a, that's a powerful uh, weapon. He said, you'll seek me and not uh, find me. That's, a, that's about the worst words that could ever be spoken to anyone in their unbelief. Because they stay in their unbelief long enough like these religious leaders had done. And one day the opportunity to find Him is gone. No matter how much they seek Him. And that happens the second after we die. And where I am, you cannot come. So he's talking about His ascension back into heaven. They don't understand any of this. And the Jews said among themselves, where does He intend to go? that we shall not find Him. I mean, we've got feelers out all over the place. In Jerusalem, I mean, we've, we know everything that's going on. Uh, I mean, in Israel. And so, it must mean that He's going to go out into the Gentile world. He's going to formally leave the land of Israel, go out among the Greeks and teach the Greeks and, and take this message uh, somewhere else. And so, uh, it, 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 at any rate here, they... Uh, th this must have excited them that uh, all, you know we're going to be rid of him. He's going to go out in the dispersion with the rest of the Jews that have left Israel to go out into the Gentile world and and uh, to and to see if they can prosper there. And uh, what is this that he has said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, uh, you cannot uh, come. All they had to do was ask Him. All they had to do was ask Him. We don't understand what you're saying. Would you please explain that to us? But they didn't want to hear the answer. And, and so they don't ask Him the question because they don't want uh, the truth of, of the answer. And so you see this... Um, uh, uh, unwillingness. One of the great things about uh, growing a little bit older, and maybe it marked your life uh, from the very beginning, depending on our personalities, but um, it is a wonderful thing to be talking with someone and have them say something and not understand it and to be able to stop and say, I don't understand what you're saying. Would you, would you explain that to me in a, in, a different, in a different way? And it's an indication we want to know what it is that they're having to say. They're not interested uh, in, in the truth. Uh, they don't realize that He's speaking uh, for heaven uh, and, and for God. Uh, the thought of Him heading out, uh, out of the land of Israel, having Him out of their hair uh, was a dream come true. And, uh, but it was really just wishful thinking on their part because He's not going anywhere. 
we'll stop right there and we'll pick things up in verse 37 next time. Um, the remainder of the chapter has not just too much content, but too much very, very valuable content to uh, rush through. So we'll ask the worship team to come forward and, and to close us out in a little bit of worship and, and just think about the Lord tonight. I, I have walked with the Lord since 1980. So I've, I've tested His Word, not in every way it can be tested, but I've been through uh, <laughs> uh, hill and dale in life, the mountaintops and the valleys, and, and one of the things that I just marvel at in terms of the teaching of the Bible is how perfect it is for life. Again, how, how self-authenticating that it is. And we, and we live in a nation, it's just like all governments in the world, uh, it's imperfect, and you see all of these crazy, but even in our country like never before, all these crazy experiments that are being conducted by government upon the citizenry, the idea that this is the truth and this will solve this problem. And you sit there as a Christian and you look at it and you go, the capacity that these people have uh, for not possessing any self-doubt is a marvel. A track record of being as wrong as they have been in everything, and I'm not talking about a single administration, and yet they, they still are convinced that they have the wisdom to manage uh, mankind and the answers to our, our problems. And so you look at it, and, and it's just, you see the decisions that are made, and you can say, anybody can see where this goes. It, it, it's, going to, it's going to go belly up, and it's going to be a disaster for everyone that is involved. And you look at every single Christian life that comes under Jesus' wisdom and you watch the quality of life mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually that occurs. And we see how many things in life turn on just the smallest little thing. Uh, the world might look at it and say, that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Everything turns on this. The motivation for why we obey God. The motivation uh, for why we uh, walk with God. All of these different kind of seem like little things, and yet it makes the whole thing work. And all we have to do, I pinch myself, all we have to do to know that this is divine wisdom that we're living under, is to just simply obey it, day in and day out. And it proves itself day in and day out for long decades and all the way into the day in which we will uh, enter into heaven. What a privilege to live under the Word uh, of God. Where would you be tonight without it? What would you be tonight without it? Who would you be tonight without it? We don't need to know. But all of our lives speak to uh, this beautiful aspect of the Word of God this evening for which we're grateful. And so let's just worship Him as we close here this evening.
together and we'll pray. Father, I think about that um, one little line in one of the courses we sing that we are, I am happy to be in the truth. And we just say thank you tonight for your truth. The life that we live is this testimony to the fact that this wisdom has come from God. And even more so, that this God is our Creator. No one could know us. The fix we're in, what You intended us to be, and, and what it is, how far we are from that, and how we need to be uh, taken to ultimately back into perfection and, and make our way through all of this is, is that plan of salvation of Yours unfolds. And we marvel at Your truth. We thank You um, for the privilege, and we, we just counted a privilege to be able to know You and to obey You. We thank You for what You have made our life into. And we thank You, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this evening and you're not yet a, a Christian, uh, we'll be up in front after the service and we'd love to answer your questions, pray with you to put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and then begin to obey Him and watch what He does with your life, the miracle He will make of it. So maybe you're the product of your own wisdom for 40 years or 25 years or the product of other people's wisdom and it hasn't panned out that well. So uh, it, it isn't like you're not familiar with the process. Now turn it over to God and watch what He will do and he will never fail you. And so come forward. If you need prayer for anything uh, tonight, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Mike, would you close us now?
And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.